If you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to Daniel chapter 2, where we're going to be today. Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 31, and we'll read together down through verse 39. Brian preached for us last week from the first portion of Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar receives this dream and cannot find anyone who can tell him what it means. And Daniel, the Lord gives Daniel revelation to show him what the dream is and what it means. And so Daniel responds to the king, beginning in verse 31 of Daniel chapter 2 with these words. He says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of an exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as the iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure." Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. This is God's word. 
Listen, I had a crazy dream earlier this week, okay? I don't know where it came from or why I had it, but I had this crazy dream that I was back at my parents' old home that was destroyed by Hurricane Laura last uh, August. And I dreamed as we were there and the family was gathered around, we began to notice all these poisonous vipers roaming around their property. And so I was, we were loading up in a vehicle and I dropped something and I looked down to grab it under the house. There was like this 20 foot long, massive mama snake that just kept churning out all of these deadly vipers. And so I told my dad, I said, Dad, I need to get the shotgun and take care of this thing that's under the house. And he said, no, you can't shoot the shotgun in the city limits because the police will come. <laughs> and so I said, okay. He said, get the pellet gun. The pellet gun. So I got the pellet gun, loaded it with pellets, and the vipers began to attack the house. And so I began to shoot the vipers in the head with the pellet gun, and the pellet would just bounce off of their skulls, and they would be dazed for a second, and they would attack even more aggressively, and they would break into the house. And I said, Dad, we need the shotgun. And he said, No, the police will come. And then I woke up. <laughs> now, I don't know why I had that dream, and I have no idea what it means, right? And I don't know if you've ever been there before where you have these dreams that come to mind as you sleep in your subconscious and you have no idea what they mean. And that's exactly the position Nebuchadnezzar finds himself in in Daniel chapter 2. He has this phenomenal dream. And in that dream, he sees this incredible image and he cannot make heads or tails of it. He cannot make any sense out of it. And so he goes to all of his enchanters. He goes to all of his magician. He goes to all of his sages and all of his wise men and none could give him an interpretation of what this dream is. In fact, right, Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't even tell them what the dream was. He said, you tell me what it was so that I will know that your interpretation is sure. And none of them could do it. And so in his fury, he wants to kill all of them until Daniel says, give me a meeting before he ever has an idea of what the dream is or what its interpretation may be. He goes home, prays, God reveals to him, gives revelation to Daniel about what the dream is and what it means. And then Daniel proceeds in before the king to not only recount the dream, but also to give its interpretation. And that's where we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 49. And in this particular text, I believe the Lord is teaching us, there's a theology here that's teaching us about the nature and longevity of both human and divine authority and how we ought to live in response to it. And so that's where we're going this morning. And the first thing I believe that we learn from this text about the nature of both human and divine authority is this, is that all authority is given by God. All authority is given by God. Listen, when you are operating from a biblical worldview, and what that basically means is this, is that when you look at the world, you're processing the world through the lens of the Bible. That's what it means to have a biblical worldview. So that you're interpreting reality through ultimate reality that God has revealed in the Scriptures. And when you operate with a biblical worldview, you come to recognize the truth that what Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, when he writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by him. Paul says that in Romans 13, and that's exactly what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. 
right? In Daniel chapter 2, when he says, now, king, I will tell you the interpretation, he says, you, king, the king of kings, in other words, the most prominent king of all the kings on the earth, he says, and then he says this, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, to whom the God of heaven has given the power, to whom the God of heaven has given the glory, Right? He has given you the position that you hold, Nebuchadnezzar. You did not rise to that position right, based upon your own merits, right? but rather you hold the rank that you do because God has placed you there. God has positioned you there. Right? That's what he says to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I want you to notice who Daniel's referring to in the text. Daniel is not talking about the best and brightest king in, Jew, in, in Israel's history. He's not even talking about a Jewish king. Right? He's not talking about the kings that honored God and sought to reform the people and have them walk in the ways of the Lord. That's not who he's talking about. He's not even talking about a Jewish king. He's talking about a pagan king of a foreign nation who's overthrown Jerusalem, who has ransacked the temple, who has carried the people away into captivity and exile and is now trying to infuse them and indoctrinate them with a pagan worldview. And Daniel says, you are in your position that you're in because God has placed you there. Furthermore, consider the governing authorities that Paul was writing about in Romans 13. Listen, they were not benevolent monarchs who cared for their people and sought their welfare. Right? Nor were they compassionate presidents who had balances of power, right? Checks and balances. No, they were not gracious governors or kind mayors. They were emperors. And they were emperors in the Roman world who worshipped multiple gods, supported infanticide, and persecuted and prosecuted the early church who held that God was three in one and that Jesus was the one only distinct Son of God. Right? If you affirm that, it could be curtains for you. And Paul says there is no authority except from God. Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, you are where you are because God has placed you there. All authority is given by God. Not only the good authority, not only godly authority, not only gracious authority, but also ungodly authority, evil authority that distorts and twists the ultimate reality as God has designed it. That all authority, even power-hungry authority, comes from God. That no one is raised into a position of ruling apart from the hand and sovereignty of God. Now you might ask the question, what do you mean by that? That God's even over the dictators who rise. He's even over the totalitarian governments that emerge. He's even ruling over all of those things. His hand is in all of those things. And here's what I will say is this, is that at times God raises good, godly, and gracious authority to positions of power in order to bless. And at other times He raises ungodly authority to positions of power in order to discipline and judge. Right? He's got purposes in both. Right? He's carrying out His purposes both through the best of kings and the worst of them. 
through the most compassionate presidents and the most cruel dictators. He's carrying out his purposes either to bless his people or to discipline them and at times to bring judgment as a result of sin in the world. He works through both, church. No matter how godly or ungodly. Right? They come from the same place, but they have different purposes in the way that God is using them in the world. And as a result, listen, we're called to recognize, we're called to recognize both. And they both teach us what it is to submit to God Himself. So all authority is given by God. Second of all, Second thing we see about authority is this, is that human kingdoms, they are all on a trajectory to decay and eventually disappear. They're all on a trajectory to decay and eventually disappear. Notice the progression of materials that constitute this statue in the king's vision or in his dream. The head's made of gold, right? One of the most precious metals or the most precious metal on the face of the earth. That our wedding rings are made out of. The chest and arms are of silver. The middle and thighs are of bronze. The legs, iron. The feet of iron mixed with potter's clay. You see this downward progression from precious and prestigious materials to commonplace materials. Right? So things that are glorious to things that are rather accessible and common. Right, and so you see this downward progression in the text. Not only is there a downward progression in glory, but there's also a downward progression in unity. Right, because by the time you get to the feet, it's not one material, it's a mixture of materials. You've got clay and you've got iron. Right, and they, those things cannot hold together and ultimately become brittle and are shattered. Okay, so one of the themes here in this dream is this. When you see this change from gold to silver to bronze to iron to clay and iron mixed together, is that there's always, listen, there's always an after this when it comes to human kingdoms. Right? There's never been a kingdom found or formed on the face of this earth that has endured all generations. But eventually, every kingdom decays, it dissolves, and it disappears. There's always an after this. In verse 39, Daniel says to the king, you're the head of gold, and yet another kingdom shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom. Then in verse 40, and there shall be a fourth kingdom. In other words, there's this succession of human rulers, succession of human governments, succession of human kingdoms, and there's always an after this. Nothing lasts forever. Gold gives way to silver. Bronze gives way to iron. Iron gives way to clay. And so on and so forth for the rest of human history. But in addition, notice, as it moves from the most precious of metals to the most common of substances, there is not a picture here of human progress as if we're moving up into the right, ascending and becoming greater and greater, moving into this great glorious city of man that is conformed to the image of God, but rather we're spiraling away from it. Throughout human history, right, throughout human history, we're not moving onward and upward, but we're moving downward and backward to create great cities that are full of sin and suffering. Think about it this way, right, whenever the, the great mighty Mississippi River, I crossed it a couple of times last week going to and from Tennessee, okay, but the great mighty Mississippi River has its headwaters located up in Minnesota, northern Minnesota, 
are all these little streams and ditches that kind of drain into this one canal that begins to eventually emerge into this large, massive, roaring body of water. And those small streams up there in northern Minnesota are clean and clear and pure. But by the time you get to the mouth of the Mississippi River in the Gulf of Mexico, it is brown and dirty and muddy, right? What happens along the way is that there's more and more sediment, more and more contaminants, more and more pollution that washes into that main channel to dirty it up. See, at the source, it starts as clean, it starts as pure, it starts as clear, but as it flows downstream, it becomes dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. And that is the trajectory of human history. At the source, whenever God forms the man from the dust of the earth and takes the rib and forms the woman from his side, they are created in the image of God, perfectly reflecting the glory of God as they walk with Him in the cool of the day there in the garden. But when sin enters the world, church, right, it is... It's not the, it's not the clear headwaters in Minnesota. It's like the Red River, Okay? flowing the boundary between Texas and Oklahoma that is dirty. And it just continues to empty that into human history. And so we devise new ways of manifesting sinful attitudes in both power structures, but also in our individual lives. So that the further away we get from the source, the less glorious it is. This is the story of human history, church, as it unfolds with and after this, and after this, and after this. Every human kingdom decays. They are transient. They spiral from one degree of rebellion against God to another. All authority comes from Him. And yet, as it's exercised in human earthly governments and kingdoms, there is a decay and a dis- dis- dissolving and a disappearance. One after the next. Third thing here, before we get to some application, is this, is that God's kingdom will overthrow, outlast, and outshine all the others. See, in the dream, there's something that's coming to take the place of all these human kingdoms. And it's the kingdom of God. And he says it will, we learn that it will overthrow, outlast, and outshine all the others. See, in the text, whenever Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, when they see this, this large statue of gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay, right, and then all of a sudden... Right, toward the end of the vision and also in the interpretation, there is this rock, this stone that is cut out, not by human hands. In other words, there was no human sculptor who took a chisel and a mallet and began to bang away at this thing, but there was a divine hand that cut out this stone, that cut out this rock, and it is thrown down. It comes crashing upon the feet of the statue. And in that imagery, the, 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 the stone not cut by human hands is God's kingdom. Right here you have all the kingdoms of the earth from their most prestigious to their, the, 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 the most profane. 
And, 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 and God's kingdom, this stone not cut by human hands, it falls on the feet, but not only does it fall on the feet, it falls on the feet, crushes the feet, but then the entire statue crumbles. It crumbles and is shattered and broken into small pieces that the text tells us, right, are like chaff of the summer threshing floors. You know what chaff is? Chaff is the residue from the grain when it's brought in from the field. In those days, they would build these threshing floors up on these large hilltops. Why did they build it on the hilltops and not in the valleys? Because the wind would blow across those hilltops. And so when they brought the wheat in from the field, as they parted to the threshing floor and banged it out, right? right? As they're removing the wheat from the chaff, the grain is falling to the ground because it has substance. There's a weight to it, but the chaff is nearly weightless. And so it begins to, to just kind of float in the air, okay, like a feather floating in the wind, and that wind blows across the threshing floor and pushes it out, leaving only the grain behind. And so what he's saying is this, is that when God's kingdom comes, it's going to shatter all the kingdoms of this world. It's going to shatter all these earthly kingdoms, and they will be revealed then for what they are even now, which is weightless and unsubstantial. They will be blown away. And they will not last. They will not endure. Maybe I'm the only one who gets excited about that image, but listen, that's a beautiful image of all the kingdoms of this earth. Right? From the dictators to the presidents. And I will say this. Right, we are blessed to live in the nation that we live in, but there is a day that's coming in which the United States of America will be blown away like chaff. And if you don't get excited about that, then there's something wrong in your heart. That day's coming, church. In which presidents will either by force or by choice bend their knee before Jesus and confess that He is Lord and God. They'll be blown away because God's kingdom will overthrow all other competing kingdoms. And they will have no lasting glory, no lasting weight, and no lasting significance. Not only will He overthrow them, but it will also outlast all others. In verse 44, we're told that the kingdom that God establishes shall never be destroyed, nor shall it be left to another people, but it shall stand forever. In other words, when the rock comes, right, it will provide the only stability for the future of humanity. The only stability for the future of humanity because it will never be shattered. It will never be broken. It will endure forever. And he says it will be a kingdom that won't be left to another people. In other words, no one's going to come in and invade that kingdom and overthrow that king and take over those people with their people. Right? It's not going to be passed down from generation to generation to another people who would then own it. God would retain rights and rule over His kingdom forever and his kingdom will outlast all others so no matter how permanent things may seem if you live in this world under an oppressive totalitarian regime or if you live in this world under a benevolent kind 
president with checks and balances in the system. Right? No matter. Right? His kingdom will overthrow and will outlast all of them as he rules and reigns forever. We're told in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, that one day a trumpet's going to sound. And when that trumpet sounds, there'll be a great declaration that emanates from the heavens in which a host of voices will declare these words, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. That's what's coming. Third, this kingdom not only overthrows and outlasts, but it also outshines all the others. In verse 35, we are told that the kingdom of God, that, that this stone not cut out by human hands, that it will grow and become a great mountain that fills the entire earth. Right? I was walking through some caverns last week in Tennessee and looking at all the formations that were there and the water that has dripped over those formations causing those stones to grow over the course of time and centuries. As I walked through that cavern and I saw these like drapery formations and stalactites and stalagmites and saw all of this waterfall in the midst of this cave, beautiful, right? And I, they talked about how the stone was alive and it was growing and it was form, being formed constantly over the course of, of generation after generation after generation. I thought of this passage of this great mountain that's going to crush the kingdoms of this world and then it's going to grow to expand and fill the whole world. And for all the talk of world domination that has been present from the inception of human civilization, right? There have been many kingdoms that have ruled over their known world. But there has been no kingdom that has ruled over the whole world. But that one's coming. With this mountain that would fill the entire earth. Overthrowing every country, present on every continent. And this mountain, it begins as a rock and it fills the entire globe. And no other kingdom, listen church, no other kingdom can boast of this kind of glory. Not, it's not a single one. And one of the reasons it's so glorious, I think we find in Isaiah chapter 11, is because this, in this coming kingdom, and this, listen to what the prophet how he writes about it. He says this in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. He says, When that day comes, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The leper shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Now let me just stop right there. Do, do not take your baby and go set it over a snake hole, alright, right now. Alright? Bad idea. But there's a day that's coming when the kingdom comes in all of its fullness and fills the whole earth in which a child, a nursing child, a small infant is going to be rolling around the den of deadly vipers. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. Look at the image there of that coming kingdom. That these mortal enemies, right? 
who have been at odds with one another from the time of creation. You've got carnivores, and you've got omnivores, and you've got vegans, whatever those animals are called, right? You've got all these animals that have competed with each other for resources throughout human history and their time on this earth who are now going to come together in peace. And that is a beautiful image, church, of not only within the animal created order, within the human created order of there being peace and cooperation and working together, no longer competing with each other because there is one who has captivated their attention as a little child shall lead them. That's the kingdom that's coming. And why is that kingdom coming? Look at the end of that text that I just read in verse 9. For. Anytime you see that word for in the Bible, often indicates a what? A reason for something. Here's why. For. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, there will not be a place on the globe to which this mountain does not extend that does not know about God, not just intellectually, but relationally as they walk with Him, that have intimacy with Him. There's a day that's coming in which sin will be done away with and we will walk intimately with God forever and ever. Amen. Happily ever after. That day is on the horizon because God's kingdom will outshine every other kingdom. It will outlast every other kingdom and it will crush and overthrow every other kingdom. So what do we do while we wait? Two things this morning. Two things first one is this. In response to this text, I believe the Lord would have us, and this and many others in the Bible, would have us build our lives on the rock that is not cut by human hands. We would build our lives on the rock. The divine rock, again, is the picture of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, listen, it starts as this small rock that's cut out and falls and crushes the statue. It seems insignificant at first. But it grows in its might. It grows in its significance. It grows in its power and fills the whole earth. And listen, this idea shows up again, or we might expect it to show up again, in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is telling some parables of the kingdom. And in verses 31 and 32, He tells a parable about the kingdom and He references a mustard seed. And he says the mustard seed, the smallest seeds of all the trees in the field, it goes into the ground as this tiny speck that you can barely lay your eyes on. But as it grows, what does it grow into? It grows into one of the tallest trees in the field in which all the birds of the air, they come and make their nest. There's language in Ezekiel that tells us that the birds of the air are references to the nations of the earth. In other words, this tree grows and all the nations come to make their inhabitants within this kingdom so God is pursuing a people for himself from among all peoples and bringing them together and giving them security and provision and safety here within his kingdom as they build their lives on this rock that's coming and so listen church as we consider how we ought respond to this particular passage as Christians we must learn to build our lives on the rock as it expands to fill the whole earth 
every nook and every cranny of creation. But listen, not only Jesus doesn't stop there because he didn't say that the kingdom is just going to become very expansive, but he also talks about in Matthew 13 about how the kingdom is very invasive. Right? It broadens to encompass the entire globe. But you know what else it does? It deepens into the heart of every citizen of that kingdom. Right? Because when you first cross the threshold of faith and you first place your trust and confidence in Jesus and not in yourself, right? whenever you take that step of faith and you say, I cannot, I have nothing to offer to God. Listen, the next day when you place your faith in Jesus, your life may not look radically different than it did the day before. But a year after, Five years after, ten years after, there is an invasion. And Jesus tells the story, another parable in Matthew 13, and he likens the kingdom right, to a woman who's got a large mass lump of dough. And she takes a pinch of leaven, and she places that pinch of leaven in the dough, and then she begins to knead it and work it, right? right? And so she's pounding that dough, and she's working it over, and she's turning it and twisting it, and throwing it in the air, and spinning it like a pizza maker, right? And then she's rolling it out with a butcher pen. She's, got, she's working the dough, and what happens as she works that dough? The leaven begins to spread, and it begins to affect and infect every portion of that lump. So not only is the kingdom expansive, but it invades our lives deeper and deeper and deeper. The rule of God comes to take ownership of more and more of our attitudes, of our hearts, of the thoughts of our minds, of the steps of our feet, the actions of our hands. That's what it means to build your life on the rock. It means to come under the rule of this king and be a citizen of his kingdom. Not because you have a lot to offer him, because you have nothing to offer him. I have nothing to offer him. He has everything to offer us. And as we build our lives on the rock, there's more and more of our life that comes under his authority, comes under his rule. And we find that we're experiencing real life. Not some hollow shell like chaff that's going to be swept away one day, but there's actually grain going into the ground and it's bearing fruit of holiness and of love and of joy and of peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Those things begin to emerge in our lives. Sometimes not the very next day. Sometimes 10 years from then. 15 years from then. Those who have been walking with Jesus for 40 years, repenting of sin, trusting Him. Listen, I envy where you are in your walk with God. you got 20 years on me. I look forward one day to looking back on today in the same way that today I look back on when I was 15 years old and God saved me. We build our lives on the rock. And we talk, we've used this language here at Redeemer before. What that looks like for us practically is this. Is that we side with Jesus, the King, against ourselves. Right? That's what it looks like to come under His rule is that whenever I find within myself desires that are rising up that are not consistent with His revelation, 
What do I do? Do I side with myself against Jesus? Or do I side with Jesus against myself? That's what he teaches us to do in the Gospels when he says, if anyone would come after me, he must what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what it looks like to build your life on the rock. So when you find within yourself, listen, let me get real practical with you this morning. Yesterday was a glorious day up here, as you can see, right? We had, we had a whole host of people up here from about 9 to noon yesterday who were making shark teeth, right? And fins and pirate hooks to play ring toss with. And they were putting together snacks and crafts and backdrops and balloon arches and all kinds of things, right? And then from lunchtime forward, there was a handful, that, a remnant that remained, right? And continued to labor until about five o'clock yesterday. But one of the things that I saw yesterday up here that so encouraged my heart was this, is that not only do we have some of the adults up here, but we had kids who would be participating in VBS who were here as well, serving to prepare for VBS. And for even those who were too young to, for their attention spans to get much past like painting one shark tooth, Right? And then they were like, woo, squirrel, right? Run off and play. Right? For e- even for those, they were here learning an invaluable lesson. And even as they ran around the building and played the rest of the day, you know what they saw? Every time they came in this room, they saw their parents serving and investing and contributing to the needs of a body of believers in a local church, pouring their Saturday out to serve. Because in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, we read these words, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Here's the question, church. Whenever your heart tells you it is more blessed to receive than to give, who do you side with? Who do you side with? You side with yourself against what Jesus has said, against the king. Or do you side with the king against yourself and say, no, it is not more blessed to receive. It is more blessed to give. And so I will give and I will give and I will give. And I will serve and I will disciple my kids in a way that they see the value of service. They see the value of contributing. They see the value of investing so that whenever they grow up, they can know what it means to side with Jesus against themselves in that one particular area. Now, we talked about all kinds of areas this morning that we should side with Jesus against ourselves, but that's one of them. That's one of them. And if you're a Christian in the room this morning, you should be saying this right now. How can I get in on that? How can I get in on being blessed to give and to give and to give and to serve and to serve and to serve? Not, how can I receive what can be given to me? If you're a member of this church and you're not serving somewhere right now, part of building your life on the rock is to say no to yourself when those, listen, I've had conversations with people over the years. Many of them no longer here. Okay, but I've had conversations with people who are like in their 50s and they're like, you know what? When I was in my 30s, we used to do this and we did this and we did this and we served in this way. But now it's like I'm retired from ministry. You know what I'm saying? Right? God no longer needs my gifts in the church. And so I'm just going to receive and consume. That is not the blessed life. Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Who will you side with?
Build your life on the rock. Now, uh, we've got to move, right? (laughs) Um, So, next question, and then one more application is this. But listen, you might be asking yourself, what if I don't want to side with Jesus against myself? And I don't want to build my life on the rock. In other words, what if I want just enough Jesus to get me out of hell? (laughs) Right? Just enough Jesus to give me comfort in life? What if I want just enough Jesus to have a successful family, but I don't want Jesus for who He is, Lord, God, and King? And I live my life in such a way so as to consciously, right, decidedly side with myself against Him all the days of my life. I want you to consider something. The only alternative to building your life on the rock is being crushed by it. That is the only, there, there is no third way. I like talking about third ways often because I think sometimes we pit two things against each other and there's often a third way. But there is not a third way here, church. You either build your life on the rock or you're crushed by it. In Luke chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus is talking to, he's, he just told a story about this vineyard owner who sends servant after servant after servant and finally sends his son, thinking that the tenants of the vineyard would finally listen to the son. And what do they do? They kill the son. And so what does Jesus say the owner will do? He will come and he will take the vineyard from the tenants, right? He will give it to others who will bear fruit. And the people are like, no way! Like, would he be that? Would he be that harsh? And Jesus, in responding to that, says this. What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. But everyone, when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. In other words, if you throw your life onto this stone, it will break you, it will humble you, it will shatter you, but it will also be the only sure foundation upon which you build your life. But if you refuse to throw yourself upon this stone and build your life on it, it will one day fall on you and crush you for all of eternity. So if you're here this morning, and you've never once crossed the line of faith and said yes to Jesus and no to yourself, right? That's not just advanced discipleship for varsity Christians. That is how you start the Christian life. Of saying no to yourself, repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus, and you've never done that. And that's, you're, you're invited to build your life on the rock this morning by taking that step of faith. Now, I've got one more application for us today before we're done, and it's this. Not only should we build our life on the rock, but also, secondly, invest deeply and distinctly. Invest deeply and distinctly. Because we may be prone to think, listen, if all these kingdoms are passing away, then we ought just create our own commune and wait it out until Jesus comes, right? We're going to go down to Waco where they build all those little domed right, caterpillars on the side of the road, and we're going to build one of those big old puppies, and we're just going to live in that all together and wait for Jesus to come back. But that is not at all what Daniel does here, right? Not at all what Daniel does. Look at what happens in the text. He doesn't avoid the culture. Rather, he acts within the culture at times to admonish the culture where it needs to be admonished and at times to affirm the culture where it can be affirmed. But look at what takes place with Daniel in verses 48 and 49. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. 
and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed his three friends over the affairs of the province of Babylon. And Daniel, he doesn't move to Waco. He stays in the king's court. He stays there. He gets promoted. He gets recognized. He continues to move up the chain in influence. He continues to move up the chain in authority. So Daniel doesn't abandon the culture, right? But rather he operates within the culture in a distinctly God-honoring way so that by the time you get to chapter 5, he's not being called Belshazzar, which was the name he was given in chapter 1. He's still being called Daniel because they recognize that he refuses... He refuses to relinquish his convictions. He didn't withdraw from the opportunities given to him to rise higher and higher in the king's court and over the affairs of the earthly kingdom. But he doesn't lose his distinctiveness as he does it, right? He lives as a Christian, right? As a citizen of God's kingdom within the kingdom of this earth in the kingdom of this world. And this is how Christians ought to live, investing deeply, right? taking advantage of opportunities that the Lord provides for them to make deep investments in their communities and in their cities, but remaining distinctly different than the perpetuating and pervasive and prevailing values that are circulating around them. So they don't abandon it, but they affirm where they can, admonish where they must, and continue to act out their Christian convictions even in difficult circumstances. They invest deeply and distinctly. This is exactly what the Lord tells the people through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7. Jeremiah writes to the exiles who were carried away into Babylon, same place, same similar time frame, and he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, and notice what he says, whom I have sent. He didn't say whom the king has carried away, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Do this, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. He says to the people of God, he says this, essentially this, live as a city within the city. As a community within the community that is absolutely distinct in its values, in its way it orders its loves and lives. But, but be present and have a presence there where light and salt are needed. He didn't say abandon your post and move to the outskirts, right? Move as far as you can out into the countryside and just live there. He says go deeply in and remain distinctly different. He tells his people who are living in this temporary home, who are exiles, sojourners, and aliens, to carry on their lives. Increase in number. Build houses. Plant vineyards and gardens so you can eat and have produce. Give your sons in marriage, and, or give your daughters in marriage, and take daughters in marriage for your sons, right? Continue to raise families so they may have kids and perpetuate the name of the Lord to every generation among the nations. Continue to live. But while you're there in exile, he doesn't say, just turn your back on the city of man, but rather seek to invest in it. Seek it welfare because when it flourishes you will flourish as a part of it as well that's what he tells them to do 
And so listen, church, let me, let me press on that here for a moment and then we'll be done. That's one of the reasons why we formed the next five team as a church to begin to look at land and to be consider, begin to consider what it would cost us in order to construct a permanent facility here in faith. Both as a place to gather every Sunday, but also as a place to mobilize from and host events at that can bless and serve the city where God has planted us. That, that's why. Not because we... <laughs> Not because we want to build a Tower of Babel and make a name for ourselves and have a really cool, shiny, nice, ultra-modern facility. No, we want to build a modern and modest facility where we can gather for worship and where we can bless this city that God has called us to minister to and live on mission in. Right? And so, you ask the question as we get into the fall, we're going to launch a capital initiative. Many of you who have been a part of us for a while now, you know that's coming. At least you should remember that's coming if you came to our anniversary back in November, right? So as we move towards that, is it going to cost a lot of money? Yes. But there is such opportunity in a city that's now 19,000 plus residents here in Fate. Rockwall County, which is projected to be 168,000 residents by 2030. That's a lot of people in a little bitty space. But every year the Lord's bringing thousands of people to our doorstep and we want to establish a presence here to seek the welfare of the city, to bless it, not, not carve out an enclave for us to just kind of do our thing, but to be a, an outpost for gospel ministry within our community. To invest deeply and yet remain distinct in our convictions and what we proclaim week after week after week after week. So there is no authority except that given by God. Every human kingdom, every single one will decay and dissolve. God's kingdom will overthrow, outlast, and outshine all of them. And while we wait for it, we build our lives on the rock siding with Jesus against ourselves, and we invest deeply, taking advantage of the opportunities God provides to serve the place that He has planted us. Because at the end of the day, you know what? Dreams do come true. This one will. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the day, for the chance to gather and to sing and to celebrate Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity we had to serve and bless this city that you've planted us in. We thank you. We thank you that you offer us real life, true life, to build our lives on you. And even though it does shatter us, it does, it does humble us, that we cannot build our lives on the rock in our pride and our arrogance, there is a shattering that takes place, God, but ultimately... You provided your son Jesus so that we may not be crushed by your coming kingdom. And for those who have never, never said no to themselves and yes to him, I pray that this morning might be that time in their lives, whether they are a, a, a child, whether they're a preteen, a teenager, an adult, wherever they're coming from, whatever experiences they've had, God, I pray they would know what it is today when they walk out of these doors to have experienced your grace because they have said no to themselves. They've repented of their sin. 
They said, I'm not going to run and rule my own life any longer. And they've trusted in your son as their king and submitted their life to him. And Father, for those who have, I pray that as we progressively are formed into the image of Christ, that you would help us say no to ourselves. And have the kingdom invade all those areas that we've tried to quarantine from you. As we wait for your kingdom to come, as we pray for your kingdom to come, help us to wait well and also pray for this city and this county and this community that you've planted us in. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.